to the season one finale of Hot Girl Histories. Today, the hot girl is Sabrina Pastersky. And with this, I give you our interview. Okay, it's here. Hello. Welcome hey. to Hot Girl Histories, Sabrina Pastersky. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Um... Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I was wondering if you want to first introduce yourself or if you want um, me to introduce you and then you can react to <laughs> like what I, I found. Whatever you want to do. This is your podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. I thought we could start to give the viewers just an idea of who you are if they don't know you already from the Forbes third, 30 under 30 description of you, which I thought would be interesting. Okay, so it explains that 2015, your work was cited um, in a paper co-authored by Stephen Hawking, and you've been nicknamed the new Einstein. A 22-year-old physicist has already earned a degree from MIT and is now a Harvard PhD candidate. She was praised by physicist George Takey, promoted by rapper Chris Brown, and even promised a job by Jeff Bezos. So, uh, Sabrina, how do you feel that that's... I know now it's almost... 10 years later since 2015 but I know it's also like five years later since the news coverage of you I feel like has died down a bit yeah what would you like to say no I, I love that it's like years in the past and that also just I mean I think that people everybody appreciates that the way that hype works and it's also funny just to see like the news cycles and or whatever was like fake news but in a way that wasn't the way that we see fake news now um so yeah I see myself I'm just a faculty member now at Permitter I love Permitter um, and it was an interesting experience, though, because of all of like uh, that. So I'm happy to delve into that more. But definitely the descriptions are are stringing together in a funny way. Some things that happened. But um, yeah. Were, for the Forbes Under 30, were you approached and had an interview or did they kind of take what they found of you on the internet? Forbes thing, the first Forbes 30 Under 30 was someone had nominated you. And so this was interesting um, because, yeah, when someone nominates you and then you grow through with whatever that is like I I think I was coming from a background with a more like industry bent where like they see that as a positive thing like all these awards and recognitions that are non-standard so basically to what extent like definitely 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 in theoretical physics and just in science more generally like like attention is not good for the sake of attention mm. I think that there are certain situations where if you were like say starting a company or whatnot and it was a matter of like these different accolades or recognition would help you promote that or whatnot it is a good thing and so i think that i had mentors who were in a different part of like they were not physicists mm. who would promote or nominate or something i have no clue who nominated me but that was my oh, wow. impression is that i had mentors from before all my mentors were in aerospace and maybe to them that would be a cool thing oh this is fun and it's not just, oh, this is fun, when suddenly you are given a reputation to public who don't care so much about the research mm. uh, that puts you in a position you don't deserve to be in, that is basically putting you in a position where you're benefiting from the reputation of a lot of established people in your field, right? So it's like almost mm. making it harder to do well in that field. So I'm super happy that I feel like I'm in a good place research-wise now, where like it didn't mess me up um, there. So I'm grateful for that. And that's why it's funny in hindsight, but it definitely wasn't super funny in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Okay, interesting. I can't wait to go back to this. Okay, so you mentioned aerospace. I was wondering if we can go all the way back. Um, yeah. So you're known for being the youngest person to build and fly her own plane. 
which is no small feat. <laughs> Wondering when I was reading about you, it was explaining that like the it almost made it seem that you went into physics because you wanted to figure out how a plane was flying. And I was like, I feel like there's more to that. So I was wondering about when, if ever, you fell in love with physics. I, I don't know. So I want to unpack all of when I thought I fell in love or to what extent you are or aren't with, with physics and what it means to be that. Um, so yeah, no, okay. I feel like what's interesting is definitely, um, so, so there's this whole world of like general aviation. And it's funny because if you're not in it, you don't know. Like, it's a really great community. Um, like, to the extent where you fly somewhere, like, they'll let you borrow their car for the day when you're you're staying in town. Um, like, and then also there are a lot of people who build these kit planes. And so it's interesting is somehow when you have, if you were just in the community, then they, there's awesome kids who go around and, like, have flown around the world or whatever or tried to. Um, and, and, like, various little superstars in that bubble. And then when you're outside of that bubble, it's like, oh, this kid's doing this really weird, cool thing. And I think it's weird, cool. I'm just surprised there aren't more kids who are, who are putting together kit planes. Um, but what's more fun to me or funny was like, I'm pretty sure like as a kid, I thought like, I honestly, I wanted to be like a singer when I was really little. I loved like singing and I was kind of into arts more. And then at some point we went to like summer camps in, in, in more like math and science instead. And they were fine and you did well in school. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure like I asked for a, um, like a broomstick or something when Harry Potter came out. Like, I think that's the extent <laughs> to which I wanted to fly. And then like, I have these parents who are like, let me translate that into something real. Like I can get you to fly. Like you might want to, and then like some of the aviation stuff started. Um, and so now I'm like, suddenly like, you know, flying just, um, uh, like with a, with an instructor, right. So you can fly with an instructor at any age. And I was like nine when this stuff started. And at some level, it's interesting because somehow they think that you're on this precocious career path. So people decide like, oh, if you're flying around, then you're going to be uh, like my airline pilot one day, start up like aerospace companies. And so at the time it was like, Jeff Bezos wasn't there, but like Blue Origin was one. I know like uh, Branson, Richard Branson was around AirVenture and, and, and uh, Virgin Galactic had a presence and then also SpaceX was at the time. So you basically had these people who had made money in some other field you know, with whatever products or whatever entrepreneurial skills. And then they wanted to have these passion projects in aerospace. And those are kind of these cool kind of mavericks coming in and um, make like kind of somehow like promising to reinvigorate the kind of the aerospace industry in a way where maybe like the progress isn't so much uh, in like, like a flying car, like Terrafugio was one company. Um, but the fact that they could get around certain red tape by being a private sector version of things that was done in government before. And so I admired those people. And I, whatever, did whatever I tried to do to impress them or to get into MIT because these like super competitive, like undergrads in the States. Um, and so it was like, okay, then I can go to Kit Plane because someone could do this. And then like my family's like, yeah, you can do this. Then the person who was a mentor at my high school, like was this Nobel laureate who had like founded my high school, but then also was like a director of Fermilab. And then he starts talking about physics and then the people who were, um, or like, talking about what it would be like to go into physics, he'd like show Lisa Randall's books or whatnot to the students who would go to these like lunch with the laureates on Mondays. And then besides that, like these airspace kind of entrepreneurs were somehow admired physics in the past. And then I thought if I wanted to be cool to the people that I thought were cool, like I'd be cooler as a physicist, which is like a bad, <laughs> that's not a good reason to be. So it's just, it's like a second order thing. It's like, I care about the people who care about physics. And I mean, obviously, like, you know, Brian Greene can give a good Nova show, which is not not the best reason. 
So that I would not say is falling in love with physics at all. That was falling in love with the notion of being a physicist, which I think a lot of people still, like if you're not in it, you don't know, you can't love something you don't know, I think. So there was that. And then I do well in school or whatever, and I like it more than what I felt like aerospace engineering was going more towards either computer science or what was interesting about aerospace engineering is I feel like the interesting questions were kind of twofold. One thing is if you work for a private or even not a private, like just a air, private, like um, like aerospace company, more just a private, like I guess like Boeing or something like that, mostly in uh, in commercial aviation. The question is, is like, are you working on something if it's a research arm that they're actually going to build? And so it seems like if it's not profitable, it's not going to be developed. So you're, are you wasting your time unless you really enjoy that project? Question mark. Um, and then the other thing was, to what extent uh, are the innovations that are going to really revolutionize that discipline or that engineering discipline going to be from within that discipline, or it's going to be some sort of like better power plants or like better, um, like more efficient, like fuel, um, like, or, or make more green fuel alternatives or something like that. Like, it's not going to be that the thing that changes your field is coming from within your field. And so that puts it in a funny position because I just I think I went into air, like into physics because of the aerospace and because of the people I admired admiring physics. And that's not a good route to go because you actually don't know what it's like to do research, I think, until grad school. Mm. Um, and that says something about like you can be the top student in courses in undergrad doing advanced stuff, but it's very different than trying to learn how to self-study is one thing, uh, which you could easily have in undergrad. You could have more reading courses. And then the second thing is then doing research where things are ill-defined. So um if anything, there were glimpses of it, maybe when I was going from working at like CERN as an intern over the summer to um, into grad school, where you'd fall in love with the fact that you figured something out and you'd really love it. Like it was an amazing experience, but then you'd be wrong or you would it'd be something so um, irrelevant that like this love that you can have for that feeling that you've discovered something gets kind of beaten out of you at some point if you're not validated and you shouldn't be validated because it's wrong or, or yeah. Um, and so then I think that I briefly fell in love with it right before entering theoretical physics grad school and decided to go into theoretical physics. And then I think I fell back out of it when it was just overhyped. And then maybe in again, once I realized that you're really part of a legacy and we can go into that more later. On that, like of the hype, I guess we can get into that. So yeah. how old were you when you first remember being called the next Einstein. And can you tell us that story and how you look back on it now? Yeah. Okay. So I'm pretty sure that I was like the only time it was called in quotes like that or anything was this title of an article that was by Ozzy. And so I came from, my family would be the type where it's like you wouldn't turn down opportunities. And so I, I don't hold that against them, but it is a different, uh, I don't know it's a little bit bootstrappy or whatever it's like if someone offers you something or they want to like interview or whatnot it'd be very hard to come to terms with the notion of saying no to things that are like you might miss the opportunity so they were going to interview me for something or they want to highlight and you have this cute story because you have this airplane stuff you're like probably the only theoretical physicist like with that much of an airplane story there's actually some more that that fly which is fun um but they wanted to be mostly for that and then you know you're doing stuff that I guess I'm not sure if I remember if Hawking cited the work before or after that, but around that, um, you're a new grad student. You really don't know what you're doing in that field, but you know, why not this girl about anybody else? Like, why not say she's like a, a super, well, can be a superstar, right? It's a, it's a promise for the future next. So you have a interviewer who thinks it's harmless to just yeah. put a moniker or whatever, because, you know, Anybody you talk to is not actually called that would love to be called that. You'd think you'd love to be called that, but you wouldn't if it's a, it's like basically um, 
I'll get to why you wouldn't want to be called that. But there were other things where Ozzy was overhyping stuff. And I think I even remember specifically, I think we said like, oh, like, don't put some sort of weird name like about it or whatever. Like, and they wouldn't let you see the article because that would be unethical or whatever. So I had no clue. It went mm -hmm. out. I remember very distinctly having this thing where it's like, oh, if it doesn't go well, like no one's going to care. Like, I, like, you know, have you ever have like a moment where you like really, uh, you remember it because you remember thinking like, it was obvious that it wouldn't matter. And then it did. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, because somehow it randomly hit their little like likes or shares. Like I think I got like a million likes or something. I don't know if it shares it like, but, and that was a lot at the time. Right. And then things get renormalized. So that mean, mean nothing nowadays with TikTok, but at the time it was a lot. And it wasn't like everybody knew you, but it definitely enough to affect your life. Uh, and so ah, very, very weird. Um, and that was the start of a little bit of an interesting blessing and curse type of thing going on after that. And how old were you? So, oh, sorry. So the age, I think I was like 22. I had to be, I mean, this, the, the, they did the Aussie, it was the Aussie article. And I mean, I wasn't a kid. This thing is I wasn't like a wonder kid. You know, you don't, it's not like, um, yeah. But, but you're, yeah, you're a grad old, student, right? Old enough that people might accidentally think that you did something within your field big enough that you should be called something like that, right? And so it's old enough that basically people can hate on you for what you haven't done rather than just hate on you because they're haters, right? Normally when you see a kid who's like winning Olympiads or whatnot and you say this kid's going to be awesome, nobody believes it, but also nobody, anyone who's hating on it is just, you know, like why? Like this kid probably won't, but don't, you don't need to hate on it. But once it's something where it's like, you're almost old enough that you're, <laughs> it's unclear to the public. Like, I mean, what was Einstein was probably doing really cool stuff by the time he was in his mid twenties, like 25 or something. Do you want to elaborate yeah. more on the idea that like everyone wants to be called it, but then when you're called it, it actually yeah. is. Oh, oh, no. Cause I mean, I just, you just hear there's like next Einstein forums or like the way his name is thrown around or like, or even if you're sarcastic about like people like, oh, Einstein or like, like um, like what I'm saying is, is that you wouldn't want anybody to actually believe you're that when you have nowhere near the credentials to be called anything like I'm a great scientist. By which I'm saying, it's a funny position to be in when everybody who knows your science or knows that things are overhyped, know it's a joke or whatever. And it's funny, huh? Okay, good. Uh, but then like you get these opportunities, like you're meeting like presidents or like um, a queen of another country. Uh, and it's like you're meeting them on this pretense that when you go up and shake their hand, someone's going to say, this is the next thing. I mean, it's like, it's embarrassing. It's like, how can you turn down that opportunity? You're meeting all these cool people and you see this value of like pop, like pop science. Um, and, but anytime you're in that position, you basically either have to like hold up a like, oh, maybe one day, like that hope that things are going to do well for your research. Well, not that you'd be anywhere near that. And then you're told like you're too modest or something if you say that. So it's like super weird how like your sense of self can get degraded when it's something where like I was never an imposter. I was probably the least of all the girls, like the least imposter syndrome because I had a very high opinion of myself. And then like this, like this overhyping just broke. Yeah, broke that like very much. Um, yeah, it's super weird to have to constantly apologize for yourself. Like it's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about um, the imposter syndrome because we spoke about it a bit last time. And the idea that like you said you had a hype in yourself, confidence, yeah. and suddenly it kind of fell apart. I think yeah. there's a lot of discourse online right now about like being a woman in your 20s and the imposter syndrome that just comes with that. And then when I hear your story and think about you of being 22, which I'm 22, and yeah. you like called something 
which I, I think when you put it in the way that like you're called the next line time without actually say doing all the pretense that you yeah, do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was wondering if you want to talk a bit more about like imposter syndrome, what it means to you, how do you feel like you've grown out of that? Or do you think you're still trying to like, I know you yeah. said you're really happy with perimeter. Um, yeah. And, yeah, just just tell me what you think. So basically for me, the, the interesting thing about it is it's like imposter syndrome with a horizon, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you're put in a position where you have opportunities that you know, if, okay, if you know it's hype, you should be taking those opportunities because you've already kind of screwed yourself over a little bit in your field to the extent where there's a whole thing about like, I think in, in high energy theory and, and just like physics in general, like that there's a disconnect between the people who are good at getting hype and the people who are good at the research and are like, you know, so popular science is viewed in a way that I think is counterproductive for our, for like public funding research. Um, but so you're in a position where you know you've kind of just hurt your chances of the good academic job that you wish you had. And then you're put in all these opportunities that you can only take if you're somewhat leaning into, like, I mean, you're leaning into it by taking those opportunities. And that's then this, then the people in your field see that and so they resent that or whatever. Um, and then you just know that you're never going to deliver because you've hurt your odds of succeeding by the fact that physics and, and research is done in a more collaborative setting than this kind of lone genius picture. Mm -hmm. And so basically, like, you know, you're set up to fail. And the question is, is like, what's the best thing to do? If you turn down things, have you already done the damage for the research field? Like thing? And if you need to leave to go into industry, these types of opportunities would help when you're nominally don't have the training like sorry like like it's easier for instance to be like probably get an offer at a hedge fund with that hype and leaving academia than if you were looking at the fact that your portfolio you have no like python coding experience or whatever right so it's just like you know that there's some value to this that would translate into a non-academic job if you needed to take it and you know that you just hurt your chances of an academic job it <laughs> yeah. still drew you to go into academia after all this hype i thought i was doing the right thing Okay, can I ask that? I heard that yeah. NASA and Jeff Bezos were like, we want you. Yeah, so did you want to go to do the right thing? What is What do you mean by the right thing? I'm just so curious because yeah. I think no, I, I... will look at your story and be like, why didn't you work for Jeff Bezos, right? But you have a, you you know why, I guess. Yeah, so, the, but those offers came when I was little and I think I'm super grateful. I mean, it's amazing the confidence that you can get when you're a kid and you want to do something. Basically, when I got the um, that offer, I was, you know, I think it was 13 or 14, right? It was a letter wow. written when I basically made a little home video saying, like, I want to work for you and I want to send you to Mars, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, is that I'm sure it's a real offer to the extent where, like, the PR around that, and I'm, like, a decent person, you know, I'm, like, I'm not going to, like, like, act like I know how to do something I don't know how to do or whatever. Um, like, I'm pretty sure I could still have a job there, right? Like, I'm sure the offer stands to some extent, but, um, you know, that was before I had kind of went to, from aerospace into physics. So I, I, I fell into physics because I thought, um, it was somehow cooler and that's not good because you want to actually like what you do. Um, but then again, to what extent anybody, when they want to go into do something, they don't do it because they think it's cool. Um, so there's that. And then the reason why I stayed to some extent, was like, um, so when you're put on a pedestal and you have these opportunities and it's because you're a woman in science, like it would be a terrible thing, I thought, and maybe this is not the right thing because you don't want to ever, you don't want to put yourself in the position of like doing something for people who don't care about the thing that you need to be doing it for. Um, but like, you don't want to accidentally make it seem like 
like the best physicists would leave physics or something like that, mm. right? Because there's already a lot of hype that's kind of gotten around, um, you know, like funding or the crisis in physics is because again, it's a, some people love drama, right? Um, and so I thought like, you know, you want to represent what it is to actually be an academic to whatever extent you, you're learning what it is. And that's, you know, you go through grad school, you're just a grad student, then you do postdocs, and then you try to get faculty. Um, and so it was a matter of just imagine if like your whole, like any opportunities that you have are based on this thing where you're so amazing. You either have to basically cut ties right immediately and go, or you have to actually do well. And by well, not like Einstein level, but you know, like do, do solid research. Um, and so that was the plan or the hope is just like actually not be an embarrassment. Be an embarrassment. It's so like, I feel like it's hard. I'm interested to see. It's, it's a bad, it's a bad attitude. It's like, I know it's not, no, not like that. It's just interesting to no. hear. I think this like breaks down a lot of barriers in the way we like, I don't know, for me at least see people in the media or like and mm-hmm. stem stuff like this of that someone like like you I know this probably like mm-hmm. you're just a person who is also afraid yeah. of embarrassment like I'm afraid of embarrassment and yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. interesting to hear um yeah do you feel like you're on track to like or not to be on track but like do you feel like you're doing research that you feel like confident in now yeah, like I know <laughs> I was surprised I'm very surprised because like you're like because like you have various people who would either say like like you get, you hear a lot and this is a sad thing is when people believe in you and then you don't you know, like before you get overhyped or anything like that it, like if someone says like I believe in you it's like it's a vote of confidence and it makes you feel better mm-hmm. versus if all you hear is a bunch of people who know nothing about what you're doing saying that they believe in you or if you talk too quickly that it's because you're passionate about it like you're assigning some sense of like how what I feel about things or how you think I'm going to do and you have and now you doubt that because you have a reason to doubt it because you're seeing it in numbers that just don't make sense mm-hmm. um like the things that would motivate you before kind of go away. And so I was very surprised that it would ever just be like suddenly better. Um, and it not only actually was, and I think part of it is the way that a faculty job is set of us compared to a postdoc job. So it's a lot easier. Like I enjoy working with other people more. And the thing that, that hype took away was the, the kind of access to collaborators in some sense, because, you know, you're kind of a, like persona not, like not persona non grata like it's not that bad but like definitely you have to apologize or explain yourself instead of just being another colleague like you know like you're not an unknown just good whatever like there's always like oh this person's overhyped and then are you going to help them become I don't know it just seemed harder to work with people a lot of people would give life advice who are postdocs instead of actually giving like like teaching you anything um and but I could understand, I think I would resent too, if somebody was given opportunities that maybe like you deserve more uh, and then, and whatnot. Do you have to, you feel like you have to apologize more like because you're a woman who's also in this position? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think the fact that I was a woman helped with the hype happening. So okay. I think it's, it's correlated, but I don't think it's because I'm like, um, mm-hmm. right. But I do think, yeah, there's various things you can go into about like the, like a gender bias in hiring and whether it does the good in the short term or long term or whatever like that um yeah ideally you want to I wish we lived in a world where it's just about quality of research um mm. but I don't think we're there yet and I don't know how to get there necessarily I think the thing that turned around was it was it's so much better being faculty because you have more people like somehow you don't have to be um there's a sense in which it's like, are you are you right? Or do people think you could be right first? So like, you could say the same thing as a grad student versus a faculty and like, or, or a postdoc at any different stage. 
and it's either like a brilliant question or a stupid question. And then also like, there's a sense in which, uh, are you, are you given the benefit of the doubt? And the thing is, is like, if your personality is such that you, they think you're aggressive whenever you're advocating for yourself, like it's very weird. Like, it's just like, sometimes it's easier as faculty because no one's going to fight you back. Right. You can just mm-hmm. be right. And not have to defend it for however long you have to defend it for. Um, and so yeah, like it is just a lot. There's a lot of things that it's just like maybe my personality, like I'm a little too bossy, and it's good to already be in a position where you are a boss, so it's okay to be bossy. I don't know, like things just gelled so much better being faculty, first of all. And then the second thing is that I think I came to terms with the fact that like I can try to pivot this experience that was a negative into something where it's not just that you uh, avoid it, but that you can use it. So I would love to see if there's ways in the future to improve. Uh, the fact that there's clearly funding and or like um, opportunities that come from the outreach side of science and there's also a clear sociology like like negative reaction from the actual researchers to it to the extent where there's a reason why these like top book writers are not top physicists because it's not just that they're the worst physicists or better science communicators it's that they become worse because they're isolated in some sense Mm -hmm. like why would you help them legitimize like their research or take credit for your thing if they're then the public voice so I think that there's a negative feedback there that you can mitigate and be more like we should be helping our students give better public talks and we should see when somebody accidentally gets overhyped that that's an opportunity for the field and not just an opportunity for that person and then mentor them in a way that's not trying to either use them or like or or make them feel like that they're going to be screwed over like um so i think that i can take actually take something from that and whether or not it's people i've met i want to show that i can use it for good um for this research community that i care about and then the other thing was i love my new job <laughs> like i've never i i couldn't imagine like when i when i got offers i got offers here and i got offered at brown and i don't think it, i thought it was an obvious choice because i thought okay brown is like the establishment it's like this validation i made it to a tenured track or maybe eventually tenured uh faculty job at an ivy league institution like how amazing is that that's great um but like perimeter it's like you have the, all the infrastructure more infrastructure than like say i think brown has and i would almost say like more efficient infrastructure for physics than even like harvard Maybe that's, maybe that's controversial, but like we have the infrastructure of this like world-class institution where theoretical physics is a priority. And so mm. if you're a theoretical physicist, like that's amazing because you're not like, you have to like in coming from an engineering background, I know like people would be like those who can't do teach or like they, they did negative attitude just towards teaching, let alone theoretical physics because like engineers are solving real world problems. And so like at a university, where is the money coming in for it? Like it's cool to be at a place where it literally is for theoretical physics. Um, mm. And then you see it also in just like the building is designed to have more collaborative spaces and stuff like that. And then you're working more with people. So it was just a combination of, I think that my personality matches the position better. Um, And we have some really nice people here. And then also like you can do some fun, like you have summer students doing kind of techie stuff, like research workflow questions. I would never be at a place where that would be considered anything like but a distraction. And so I love my job almost more than I love uh, the research. But when you love your job and you like then have cool people and then suddenly you realize this research stuff is actually like, it's, 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 it's also really cool. So what's kind of funny is, again, I started to love my research even more because there's a time where I was, yeah, like I, I always, never the research that was the problem, but it was like, is this worth it? Is like, how much do you love it compared to the thing? What's cool about what happened recently is that we really had this interdisciplinary thing. And I think Perimeter also helped with this. We have like Kevin Costello and we have like Lauren Friedel and other faculty who are working on these problems. And so it's like, you suddenly realize the value of, um, so the thing is a grad students, like a lot of the stuff that I did 
you could just give credit to my advisor for, which is kind of sucks because it's all like, like how much credit are they willing to give you? Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, and the thing is, is like, you know, that that mentorship is important and you know, you wouldn't be doing the things without them and that's great. But at some level, it's kind of scary that like, like how much of your career or future depends upon factors that are not really directly in control because it's not just what research that you do, it's how other people view it. And so if some people don't like a certain research line, you're already screwed for jobs there. Mm-hmm. And you have to really like what you're doing enough to to not care. Or you realize, hey, this is a problem, we can solve it. And so like, I think a lot of people either act like, or maybe they're lucky that they are, that they just love exactly the questions that they're answering enough to not realize how shitty like the job market can be. Or you can say, wow, as soon as you get people who talk different languages, talking to each other mm-hmm. and like working on the same problems, you're more efficient because you're not trying to learn something you don't know well. You can get the people who know that expertise to do the thing. And then suddenly you can actually build forward. If you take a step back and say, wait, it's not just that this program evolved from some software and stuff. It's that you're really trying to understand how to look up at the night sky and uh, use some like insights distilled from string theory and like the black hole information paradox to say that you expect there to be a holographic description. Um, you're basically merging tools from it, from qubit, from bootstrap and from amplitudes to study something that is like basically like what does high energy physics tell you about the real world? And that's amazing. That's almost all encompassing in some sense. And like, and it's neat to just see the power of this interdisciplinarity mm-hmm. and like connecting and condensing the canon because that's something that you can do. Like, I know I can do that. I know I can make it kind of more compact and like understand connections that already are there for the making rather than hoping that one day I'm going to have a breakthrough that's going to legitimize me in the eyes of people who don't really care. As like someone who is in now the research field and also someone who believes in like scientific communication yeah. improvements in that. I want to ask you what you struggle with, but also what you like hope. I know you mentioned some ideas about in the future um, working to use like hype, I guess, to make like more scientists and more like, I guess, respected scientists. So I was just wondering, yeah, just your thoughts on that. Yeah, not necessarily more. Um, but so for example, um, so let's unpack. There's two things there. The one thing is the using the hype thing. And then the one thing is, so the hype, communication, and then maybe funding is two different things to keep track. So for example, for myself, um, I talk too quickly. I also uh, will probably be prone to rambling because I enjoy it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely know, uh, like I, I know very various negatives there. Um, and then the thing is too, is it's, it's a different skill. I always thought like you're going to, like at one point when I was trying to really hope that I'd like, do something or whatever like just legitimize myself i was reading a lot of textbooks reading a lot of papers and not really doing as many problems as i needed to and things like that and so by absorbing all of this information and or by writing research papers you don't just randomly get the skill of like distilling things and so like for example i mean i think some things that you understand well you can explain clearly but i know for instance various like um science writers like I, by, like I, like say like Quanta or whatever articles they're writing for, they would ask better questions about my research discipline than I could ask about an adjacent one. And you see that, and you're like, wow, is this person amazing, or is it like a different skill set? I mean, they're amazing, sure, but like I'm saying, like like that they're that much like better at you at like everything. Like you assume people who can do that, uh, if they can distill a pressing and powerful and interesting question, that they must know it well. And I think that we have to decouple ourselves from that belief. And realize that there are big picture things and then there are very like deep things and like um and uh like you know deep knowledge space things 
and so trying to develop those skills in parallel or see it as such is something that I just don't think like we, we think about, especially if there's an aversion to science popularization. So like every time you're writing a book, I've, apparently I think that you would say that they're making analogies and like to what extent if you have an analogy that goes too into something that you know will hit some sort of cultural, I guess, uh, is it compromising the physics or misleading or whatever? And you have those debates. And people definitely see the people who are good at that skill as somehow like fake in some sense. I mean, it's just, it's interesting, or at least, or not as valued. And as soon as you see that, then you have an inversion to developing those skills in the same way that a lot of R1 institutions, I think there are people who pride themselves on not being good teachers. Yet somehow pride themselves on teaching because they think that's the value they're bringing. So it's just interesting to me that you can see these skills as somehow ordered and that by being bad at some of them, you're better at the other one, right? Because you must be good at something. So it must be that your research is amazing if you can be that bad at teaching and that bad at like science, public science talking. Like you must be a good researcher. And I even you'd see this, like I would talk quickly and you'd have people who would tell me like, oh, that means you must really love what you're doing or like you can see. And it's, just, it's like, you're assuming because of this like lack of a skill that I have, that I must be amazing. <laughs> It's just like it's like we know it's not for this like we know it's not like, and that's great and that's so funny to see like if you just don't try to explain it they assume that you can um so uh i personally think that there's two ways to mitigate this so one thing is to appreciate it's a different skill which means you can go for that right away and i think that you can actually have grad students be better at this too so like for example whether or not it's for science communication but more so just for the big picture if you go on InspireHep, which is this database of like all of like our papers and high energy theory and adjacent fields, you can find the most cited papers in the last number of years. It's like different tags, like citations over some number, year after some number. And if you look at all those papers within HEP theory, you take the top ones, you should know what they are. You should know the names of those papers. And literally just remembering the name of the paper and the topic it's on, suddenly you have the type of breadth of like suave of like a well-educated physicist, even though it doesn't take that much time to remember that much more time to really dive into it, right? And you can also try to like cluster different um, like researchers who they've worked with or whatnot. And you can see these communities from like the, the clustered nodes in a graph and you can use some like, like big data analysis stuff to like tools that do it for you. You don't even know how the clustering algorithm works. And so seeing the big picture is something that like an intern in undergrad can do. Um, like, like the type of data that you would do in, in financial markets as a quant intern at a hedge fund. Um, and yet somehow I think you distill information you don't get, except for with many years of just knowing the people because it's a small group of people who do that research. And so I think being more proactive about what are research trends and then what is it that makes somebody better at science communicating than another and then sharing like the slides, like how you would present it, viewing it as something where it's not like, oh yeah, I'm the one who's good at it. You know. um, like that would improve the quality of the science communication there. And then also engaging with it. Is it clear that you need to have, um, like if you were a company, you wouldn't have necessarily the uh, spokesperson for that company be perceived as being the CEO of that company. I mean, some of the CEOs are also spokespeople, but like there is a role of somebody who's good at communicating that doesn't get the credit for the whole company. And we have this problem, I think, in our field where like the people who are the face or the voice of it are seen as the leaders in it. And maybe they wouldn't be interested in them if they weren't the leaders. But I think like, I think there is some interesting value that can be said of like, this is the statement for of some large number of physicists, but it's said well. And so maybe working, like people don't normally write popular science articles together, but we write science articles together. So I, maybe I don't understand that. Like, right, there's like so many more co-authors on a physics paper that's very technical, 
but not on just like really honing in a very, you know, clean um, public presentation. So we don't value it is one problem that you can change. And then when we don't try to develop those skills and some of those skills aren't that each person would be good. It's just that we find people who are and we can promote them in a way where we're not accidentally saying that these kids who might be great at like getting people excited and the young generation, that we're not saying that they're Einsteins in order to get them that platform, right? 100%. I think from what I hear, it sounds like almost what you love about your job. Yeah. Like, it almost seems like you wish that there was almost that sort of like communication and this like yeah. between different parties. And perimeters, like that's why I'm like, I'm like, I, like I'm at the perfect place and I know this now, but I didn't know this that like, because like, I think it took me half a year to like get used to living in Waterloo. <laughs> but now it's <laughs> charming it's like the public works are interesting so I love it but um but no it's amazing to be at a place where it literally is all aspects of the research workflow and then the the pipeline of of coming into academia and then selling it to the public within one place and so what I'm saying is it's kind of like I mean it's almost like a company to the extent where you care about the, there's a product and then everything you need to make that product amazing and so when theoretical physics is that is that focus it's very powerful as compared to basically our universities effectively have research portfolios and they might always have all these like our top quality stock or like that. But if one doesn't do well, it's, it's hedged, right? They don't necessarily like the whole point is they're hedging against what are the trends in academia and maybe they're hiring more in it or like that versus like, you know, we want theoretical physics to be better. Like we care about that. And so it like institutes that are just centered around that type of thing have a natural um, different type of, of um, needs and the, the, and it's fun to be at a place. It's like being faculty nominally is very entrepreneurial. I mean, you have startup funds or the analog of that is initiatives here where it's like, you can hire people, you can build a team. And then the cool thing about academia is that people work together across all different employers. And so you really, it's about finding good ideas that people um, also find interesting and finding the right people to do them in a way that as faculty is the first time where you get to really do that team building. And you also get to help people and not see them as competition because postdoc is weird. Uh, so there's something a lot healthier about being faculty and then amazing of being at perimeter if you're the type of person who was a little bit too um, entrepreneurial for a normal uh, faculty job. Because like the right ethos is that I do this because I love it. I'm a martyr for it. And oops, I just happened to be wealthy and successful. <laughs> you know, like the grad students should be paid in my time. Like that's like, the, that's the ideal. And it's like, how is that an ideal? Like, I don't know if our idols would have that as the ideal. I think that they were doing what they were doing because it was actually more, like, technologically relevant. And if it's not, then why are they on the Manhattan? I mean, like, like there, there's a sense in which I think we project, um, like, you you take, yeah, you can take the things that are negatives. So it's like, it's not useful and turn that into a positive. It's like, we're doing it because we love it. It's like the only excuse most people give. Yeah. Uh, and then lean into that very hard and then act like anybody who isn't the purist in that sense should be excluded from it. And mm -hmm. when it's when it all, when whether or not your idea gets adopted and internalized into the, the research canon, it matters what people think, and it matters that you don't fit that ethos, and that's kind of scary. Um, so I am excited about two things. I'm excited about the one thing is data-driven, um, like the sense in which you can kind of actually see a bird's eye view of the field. Uh, I think that's fun. And then the second thing is to what extent we can kind of embrace like all of the haters going to hate from the technological side. Like you have a lot of tech people, friend, like maybe not friends, but like people you run into over the time where they see like, well, why, why, like, why are there more breakthroughs? Like where are the breakthroughs? You know what I mean? And I would say the cool thing about our field is that it's really a translation problem. 
And so some field in physics might have been revolutionized by better like computational power. And ours really hasn't changed. I mean, by like having computers that can do more, but like better numerics so much. Um, but better semantic search would probably revolutionize the, the, the workflow that we do, like being able to take a picture of a board and then turn that into notes. Like yeah. there are a lot of cool things that I think only a place like Perimeter would be willing to like invest in like, or build those partnerships in a very proactive way where it's not tech money, but like tech expertise. So like, I'm super excited to be at a place where I can do like, I can do politics or I can do tech or I can do research all in one place. And it's like, what is this place? I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also see the Marvel like pinball machine in the background. Is yeah. that yours? <laughs> it's mine. It's supposed to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it away eventually when we have room for it. We have a, that we have a uh, pool table that was oriented the wrong way to like have space for this thing downstairs. It was a Christmas <laughs> um but yeah no I have and I have like a piano that I can't play very well and we, we brought it down for strings we had a music night at strings so I'm really proud I, I organized like the best place ever I don't even like physics and I'd be there no, like, I love it here. that's what I'm saying and the thing is is that we have half the building is in physicists they're like we yeah. have an awesome team of ABIT conference running people like and hopefully we'll have more podcasting or things like that too <laughs> like, no like exactly it's like you need more than just physicists to do good physics research and like at no other place do people appreciate that I would say because all they have is like whatever admin assistance the university gives them and then at Harvard they don't want to go to the med school it's like it's neat to realize that the thing the work that you do would be more efficient with people who are not necessarily just carbon copies of you awesome I was also wondering about your like relationship with the internet I know you spoke about yeah. tech um, and like how it's evolved, I imagine what happened like when you were calling the next Einstein and blowing up on Twitter, I guess that that's probably changed how you view the internet. Um, and I was, yeah, because I, I was going to say, I know on Instagram, for example, I was like, yeah. oh, I have an Instagram account. And there's, there's someone that, yeah, like, you know, but, they're, they, but they just post, they just post about you, but it's fine, but it just has a lot of followers. I, I don't even, now I, I don't even know that, but you don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, what I thought was funny uh, is uh, that, like, I have a, a family who care a lot about, like, they would not want anyone else to be able to impersonate me. Let's just say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> wait. Keep that away yeah, from that. But, like, they definitely get bothered by that more than I think it's funny. Um, so, like, I don't know. It's super weird to me. Like, I think the interesting thing about the internet is you're seeing large numbers of people, and then you want to understand if the sample is biased. And I think that in certain situations it is like what was fun about organizing a conference with 200 people is you realize it's not personal because you're, it's not about you. The conference, they want to go to this conference and you'll find these people who are much more willing to complain than maybe what you'd expect an average person to. And your first reaction is to ignore them because you're like, they're irritating. They're bothering me. I, they don't know how much work I have, but the thing is they have a lower standard for what threshold for them bothering you. And they're basically telling you things that everybody else is too polite to say. So it's like, it's information. And so there's a level at which it's fun to have large numbers of people giving feedback on something where you don't feel personally attached to it, where you can then see the value of feedback at scale. I think I couldn't handle it because I came from like, I, I mean, I came from a family that was very much like giving you a good sense of self to the extent where it was like, screw the world, be the like almost too much though. Right. So like, if, if you listen to somebody, is it peer pressure? It shouldn't be like, it, there's value to hearing even when a person who's upset with you thinks because, you know, they're going to try to find the thing that's closest to being true that they can know bothers you. So like you're getting more information. 
And the problem is you need to develop a sense of self that is robust to it, by which I think you're better off um, not deluding yourself, but rather like being able to uh, not let it hurt you because even if it's true, it won't matter for the things that you care about, right? So, so there's this, a thing that I think I came from a very strong sense of self that was not stable to large scale feedback. <laughs> And that, like, I think I've gotten better with it, hopefully. Um, because not only having more information just gives you more power. And most of the time, though, when you see feedback on the internet, it breaks you. And so why is that? I think it's because we we overvalue, so like, there's, there's a sample bias, which I think we should be careful about. And then also, we sometimes um, think that the things, some things being true and, like, preclude things that we care about. And that can drive you up a wall. So, Yeah. I feel like it's like this line between ego and then also like, you know, getting you be having an audience, as you say, that like you normally yeah. shouldn't have in a way of like yeah. that will critique you that in real life you won't have that people will come. You know, but, but if in real life they did, I would I find a way to invalidate that. I'm sorry. I was very <laughs> like in real life, I would find a reason to tell myself that they actually were jealous, right? And this is bad. You shouldn't, you should like not everybody. Can you explain that me. more? Like, yeah. can you explain it? Because well, imagine imagine if you're like, like you grow up with the sense of like any feedback that's like invalidating the sense of self that you're like a very strong sense of self that you've been raised with, uh, must be haters gonna hate. Yeah. So then you have to try to validate that somehow. So if you know the person, you can be like, oh well, I know like they were bothered by this thing, and this is just their retort. Like you can find an excuse for why an individual person because anything has a reason. Someone's writing something for a reason. They're not just going and gonna say like this person sucks because they had a great day that day. Like yeah. there's a reason. And so when it's a person that you know, that reason might be correlated with something uh, where you know there's a personal animosity versus when it's at scale like that, it's not a personal thing, it's a them thing that is then translating into something that actually can hurt you, right? So I couldn't handle at some time like the, the scale of the feedback from people who would have no reason to particularly like hate yeah. me. And so it must be true. Uh, and I think that's what the internet gives you in a way that I really resented, like anonymous forums and things like that. Uh, yeah. Even though I mean, I believe, I mean, most of what they're saying is kind of true and that's why it hurt um, because it went against my own sense of self uh, a little bit. And then, but you don't, yeah. So, but I think I've come to terms with the fact that like knowing what people think is much more um, like, having information versus trying to pretend that you don't know it one of them is a strictly like better position to be in if you can handle it um because you yeah it's it's interesting i think it's it's it, you like it's dangerous i think or not a good thing it is i mean we can if you can try to avoid being in a position where information hurts you that's not good like when you need to have like the blinders on to just do your work it's unfortunate and i think that's where yeah if you can be robust to that, that's that's what I would. If I had a kid, I would like try to make them robust to, to uh, that. Have a sense of self that's more like pragmatic about what you actually need, as opposed to what like basically the notion of like distributions versus the average being the truth. Uh, like that's something I think is lacking in nuance. For a woman in your twenties, like just not right out of college, how was it navigating like personal relationships with like friends and family? Did it like or like? Yeah. Work? Did it affect like that? Yeah, I think it did. I probably did, yeah. Um, and then like, do you think it was more like, do you think it just threw you off? I mean, it definitely affected it because the thing is, is like your family, especially because of my family is non-academics. So like 
they think these things are good things. They're like, oh, cool. Look what my, what my daughter's meeting. Like, right? like it's, and it is cool, but it, it comes with a price that they don't understand because they're not in academia. Yeah. And so then you have this funny tension where it's like, you know, they, for reasons that they are very valid in thinking, these are all cool opportunities. And then now you have to kind of convey it's a bad idea or whatever. And then it's like, are you conveying it's a bad idea? Or are these bullies in your field conveying it's a bad idea? And it's just awkward. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think the thing is, is you can learn from like, everybody believes what they believe for a reason and then try to understand, like, I don't understand what that reason is before you decide who to believe, I think is, is a good thing that you learn from that. And one of the things about like, even said like I'm I'm not cool not yet like I'm not oh yeah and that you like you know you've explained that you want to yeah. like it was the cool thing to do so I wonder yeah. I want to hear from you what does it mean to be cool in a field like physics which yeah. oh I think like, we're gonna be cool I don't think I'm cool like I don't do my research like I think it's it's getting cool it's like, sorry it actually is sorry. it's pretty cool so what I think is cool about it and I'm surprised I mean like I'm as surprised as you that I would actually say that too because 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 Basically, we have we got this awesome grant where it's like basically 13 faculty from all around the world. We have 8 million US dollars to spend on like bringing people together to work on this thing, hiring some postdocs. And like one, it's like there's a like there's a private like foundation, the Simon Foundation, that I think kind of sets the cool trends to the extent where people follow where the funding is and where the jobs are. Now I wish that what that turned into, and I think it can, is that people become more mobile. Like I'm more than happy to, if this is a hot topic that like, if we all work on it, um, we can make free progress. I think it's great when funding can direct that, mm -hmm. but I just want to hope that we can basically not convert, but it, that it turns into things where people who are doing other things come in and work on the thing rather than that you create people who only know that thing. And then when that funding dries up or whatever. So I think that my field kind of became cool because now it has the resources to mesh into other fields. And then I think that the level of like sociology that I've had a lot of time to think about for reasons unrelated to the research um, puts me in an interesting position to at least try to be, um, to have conversations about that without bashing the field. Like I, I, if anything, like I respect the people in my research field way more than I've respected people that I've interacted with in other situations prior, like other like job experiences. So I think these are really awesome people. And I think that if we, the ones of us who maybe don't feel like we all want to feel like we're only in it for the research and that's all that matters. But like, there's realities there that we sometimes are afraid of talking about. And I think that I'm less afraid because I'm like, holy shoot. Like, I never thought I'd be in a position where I'm actually like the research is going well and the job security is good and da, 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 right. So can we change it? Does it need to be that way? Can we also be more aware of kind of like how trends are set in the field, like what they are, like, look at the big picture. So, I am excited about all those things. And I think that's pretty cool. And I think perimeter is really cool. So by association, I'm really cool. So <laughs> no, okay. but, yeah. I wanted to ask you that because I feel like yeah. when people think of physics, they think of like, you know, the old guys who are just oh. of that because of my dad, of like steady. Yeah. Your dad's pretty things. cool. He was trying to get us all to go to salsa dance. I mean, like that's cooler than me. <laughs> like, there's magic of course cool. he was. Oh my God. Um, yeah, but that's, that's awesome. I feel like, yeah. it's like you're really interested in like more accessible and like um just like resources going into like cool projects and things that like yeah which is like awesome I feel like that is super cool yeah. so. no and it's fun to be in a position where you can yeah as opposed to a zero-sum game and that's just something that I didn't have until I had this faculty job and especially being at this place 
It's like you realize that it's better. You want people to do great things in your field because then you can, like, a, it gives you more things to do, even if it's not you at the moment doing the greatest thing. Um, and you don't have that luxury until your faculty to think that way. And it's so much less toxic. It's just nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I was wondering, look, I guess it goes along the same lines of like um, the perimeter and stuff, but I was wondering what your goals are, not necessarily professional, but just in general, in the next 10 years. I know that now you're entering like a new era at perimeter and stuff. Yeah. And, and as faculty, as you say. And do you want to like stay out of the spot, like the media spotlight, the hype spotlight? Or do you see yourself some like hoping to creep in in a different way? I don't know. I was thinking about it because I know, yeah. I hope that we set up mechanisms by whoever happens to get the spotlight. Because I think the spotlight is much more random. Like, I mean, you could say like I spent years networking, like little handing out business cards as a kid yeah. to various people, trying to meet them. And you could only do that as a, I mean, like there are certain relationships that you build up that like people are just too kind to kids or nice. <laughs> um, and I think that that was years of work that somehow turned into that uh, that blip. So it's like, it's almost like you made it happen and you know you're kind of guilty for that. But then there's a part of it when you have no control. Like I, I, I'm very fortunate that kind of with COVID it died off and things like that. I think it's a good thing that it wasn't as constant because it's kind of fun. It's like you give a public talk and they, they care about the research. They don't want to know about you. It's like, what is this? Like, I mean, like it makes sense. Like you're giving a public talk about research. Like people care about physics. They don't care about you. Who the hell are you? But it's like actually nice. It's like, whoa, like, like they, they value the thing that you're doing, not just like the story or something like that. Um, but then I, yeah, I think there is literally value to the story. So what I hope is that if I can turn, like, I don't want to write a book and then be the person making money off of my story. I want to see if we can set up mechanisms where the values of the stories and the value of the stories that, like the, that we're building by building these, these research um, programs are capitalized on in a way that benefits the research community. And the thing is, is that you don't, first of all, we don't have much infrastructure when it comes to like the annual conferences for the field. So I think we could build up a little bit of, I don't know if it's like a, like what the right term, like it's not like a, like an online university. I don't think it like, but the university structure to the extent where you can have like faculty lines or postdoc lines or things like that, um, maybe a foundation. I think it would be cool to have some infrastructure across the field, whether it's formal or whether it's just basically realizing that there are things that if the community really wants it, we can go and proactively ask for it. Like, I mean, like if, if something makes sense, then you can find the funding for it. And I think I never had that attitude that things were more fair because I thought I was just like, it's kind of random. So you have these random things that happen and when they happen, you want to basically use them as a positive. And I think we're not proactive about that. And I think there's ways to set it up so that in the future, you don't create a bunch of next science things. You, you basically create a bunch of platforms or whatever that is to, to highlight the stories of people going into academia and then what the people are actually doing in the field and being open about it and learning from like the negative things instead of being defensive. Um, so that, so one thing is, is a little bit on the, um, on the organization of the community and thinking about all the different either revenue streams coming into it or like what we could ask for that would make our workflow easier that we would never have the authority to ask for within our own institutions right we might the questions that we're interested in might not be relevant to the world but the way that we solve them I think involves technology that is very relevant and we should not let that turn into another instance where like CERN helps bring the world the internet but then needs to keep asking for funding like can we keep uh, hold on to money like same thing with quantum when there's the quantum computing if you're just hype you want the money to be coming from industry you'd be like yes pay us pay us pay us if it's all hype 
If it's not high, retain that equity and use it to fund research going forward. Because we have very limited opportunities and probably fewer opportunities where the research we're doing is going to have a very strong interplay with industry, where there is like the scale of money comparable to the scale of money you get from government. And then if you are really going to rely on government funding, then you need to be careful about like how much you're giving back to like society with the fact that you're the ones who are these knowledge keepers for these like canons of like why why we're here. So basically better organization in the field and with that better kind of use of like the fanboys and fangirls of our field. Some of them know how to do stuff that would be very helpful to us. Um, and can we basically make our lives easier and make our research more efficient so that we can have more breakthroughs? I think it's kind of cool. Um, and then can I maneuver or rebrand the research field I'm doing to really be as encompassing as I wish it is? Yeah. You were pre-TikTok, but now with TikTok, yeah. things blow up. Like, um... It's just interesting. So yeah, I mean, but I I would not, I would not recommend, I would not want to put someone through what I went through. Yeah. But if they have to be in that situation, um, I think it shouldn't be something that they shouldn't be shunned. It should be celebrated and it's fun because it's just like you're engaging with a lot of people. You're suddenly having a platform and yeah. like instead of basically like snickering when the person talks too quickly, like can you help them give better public talk? Yeah, you like know? actually I mean, people. Yeah, right. Imagine, imagine. I know, imagine the world. Have you ever like met someone who has had a similar situation of you of like kind of blowing up on the internet? I, I don't I think I've ever but I know like Katie Bowman, I think, but there's an example of someone who did it after. I don't know her. I know the guy who accidentally had to defend her, uh, Andrew Tail. He's super nice, but he was put in an awkward position because again, yeah, it's 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 interesting to me. And like also one funny thing is it's like at one point there was like an outreach conference here and it's like even the outreach things sometimes gatekeep it's like you didn't do outreach it's like why did I do like how did I not do outreach it's like it's not outreach if you didn't try to do it I guess I don't know like they somehow they weren't considering what I was doing outreach and I was like I'm like what was it then what was it just like unashamed self-promotion with like like I don't know yeah. um but like it's super weird like like I think that anybody writing or being interviewed for a popular science article is doing some level of outreach. And so we have this kind of distinction between the people who are really writing books and that, like we should be the publishers of popular science books. I think that either, either the publishers shouldn't be getting the amount of money they are and it should go to the authors, or if you're going to write about our research field, pay the research field a little bit. The same with like, like only the same cost the publisher would. It's like, it, why don't we publish our own books? I, I think, um, but that might be a lot of work. Who knows? Universities do this. It would make sense if the disciplines that are the experts did it. And there's various headhunting services. They'll basically just go through who's employed at, at like IAS or whatever for postdoc and then try to like grab them. Like we can help basically, like there's an arbitrage opportunity for the fact that we know certain faculty are hard to work with and they're at places that maybe don't have the same reputation, but we know in the field what their reputation is. And mm -hmm. so as soon as there's a, a mismatch there, like we can help people get better jobs. And also there's a whole attitude of like leaving industry is like abandoning your passion or something like that. We need to cut that, build an alumni network. That's something you can do without any sort of weird woo -woo, like um, utopia view of how to fund science. Amazing. So yeah, so basically I'm gonna help us build an alumni network. I think I can just do that. Um, and then I will get to celebrate more of the cool people in our field and what they're doing now. So it's gonna be fun. Amazing. Um, and I think to conclude, I wanted to ask you if you could tell yourself when you started at MIT, one thing, yeah. what would you tell her? <laughs> at that yeah. Hold on to the, uh, the seatbelt. <laughs> it's a bumpy ride. <laughs> Do you have anything, that, like any advice to like, I guess, 
either young woman um interested in going into STEM or you know physics in general um yeah. if there's anything that you think is like I don't know that you've learned from your journey as a you know your very unique journey as well yeah I mean understand why you're doing it and also listen to yourself to the extent that the worst thing is to think that it's not your choice to have done something I think like and so what I'm saying is I don't appreciate necessarily too much about oh we need these quotas for women in STEM or whatever or like the sense in which we will try to like align ourselves with certain ideals like I think when I was younger it was much more like yeah I would do give up anything for a career but it's like would you really like I mean to, to the extent there's like are you happy enough in the career is this what you want um and so like how much of it was based on what I actually wanted or just thinking that I that's a price I would have to pay and accepting that or whatever um so I would say the only thing it would be like just don't let people try to push you into or out of a career based on some preconceived notion of like uh like either out of it because you think oh you can't do it or whatever which I don't think is it should be hopefully people don't see it that way um or into it because like it's cool because you're like one of the only you know pick me type thing um so like yeah I just I I hope that basically there are problems that one run into if you're like the minority in any situation uh and that solving those problems is more important than just pushing the numbers at you because you can get that result without the right why um you want to at the same time you want to be a better place to work but just putting the bunch of girls are sure we can point out problems but it doesn't say solve the problem if we're not also quality enough researchers that we have the same say um so awesome um, is there anything else you want to say? I want to say thank you to you. Um, yeah. Me. But no, it's been awesome yeah. talking to you. Um, And I feel like your story is one of like, I feel like as much as people might hear first, like what people say about you and then be like, oh, I can't relate to her at all. I feel like your, you know, struggles of like, you know, imposter syndrome and feeling like there's so much things to live up to. A lot of people can really yeah. like, like, understand how much, especially I think young girls understand how much of a pressure it could be like the situation that you were put in at such a young age, but now also how you got through it and how you're here Yay. working a job yeah. you love. <laughs>